Welcome to Success Grid, the place for sharing entrepreneurial stories, knowledge, and wisdom to educate and inspire you to always strive to raise your standards in your business and your life with your host, Hussein Talib. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Success Grid podcast with your host, Hussein Talib. My guest today, Warren Cogden, helps ethical entrepreneurs build businesses that matter. He's done this since 2002, helping owners enjoy eight-figure exits, seven-figure salaries, three-day work weeks, and culture that create positive impacts in their business and lives. Warren, welcome to The Grid. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. Awesome. Awesome to see you too, Warren. So uh, basically... You're talking about ethical entrepreneur building businesses that matter. We'll get into that, which is an amazing perspective, actually. <laughs> Not many people say, say things about these kind of things, especially nowadays. But tell us first sure. a little about you, your story, and how did you get entrepreneurship? Because I knew that you worked in corporate and other things. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I, I've got sort of a long, weird, crazy story <laughs> in some ways. For me, it starts actually at birth. Uh, because I was supposed to die. I was given zero chance of survival at birth. And uh, the doctors told me, you know, basically they were going to do or didn't tell me. They told my parents. I was a baby. Uh, they, told, they told my parents that, uh, you know, they were going to do some experimental surgery. And I was the second person in history to live. Well, on, that, that, uh, on, that, on that case, on, that, on the certain case that happened to you when you were born. Yeah. Yeah. I had a congenital what, 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 defect. And, uh, what's, and they, what, what's that exactly? I just had a defect in one of my organs and oh. they, they didn't have the ability to operate on organs that small until just like the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was the second person in history to, to live through that kind of procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I heard that, it kind of spurred in me this desire to do something with this unexpected gift. Um, yeah. And so I, I, all the things I did were kind of a, in search of what that thing might be. You know, so I, I became a lawyer. And I thought, you know, in, in Canada, where I live, a lot of people in politics go, go there through law. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll go into politics and try to help society that way. Uh, and then, you know, I met people who played that game and thought, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> and then just, you know, pursuit of justice. And But then I found, you know, I, don't, I like building, making a pie rather than fighting over a pie. And so I didn't really like law that much. And then I became a college professor. Uh, I was an actor and a theater director at the same time oh, during cool. all of that. You and know, theater, you, you worked in theater. Oh, cool. That's that's guess I tough. Uh, I, I suppose. <laughs> oh, it was, it was very fun. It was, it was <laughs> great. Oh, and then I became a director. But, you know, the, the truth was nobody was leaving my plays changing their lives. So I was entertaining people, but I wasn't necessarily having an impact. Mm-hmm. And then, then I found entrepreneurship. And that's where it really started to sing. Like, I... I believe at the core of my being that entrepreneurship is one of the most powerful forces for positive social change. You know, and entrepreneurs, what you do as an entrepreneur, you saw, you know, there's, there's a there's a play called Rent and there's a great line in it. It says the opposite of war is not peace. It is creation because mm-hmm. war is actually about destruction. And so creation is its antithesis. And so what do entrepreneurs do? You create, you create solutions to problems, you create jobs, you create wealth, you create opportunities, you create experiences for customers and employees. So what you do as as an employee really matters. And therefore it matters that you do it well. Um, So after doing entrepreneurship myself, and you know, I, we had three or four businesses in the new media space, 
and then went through what was called the dot bust era where you know everything sort of crashed in that and survived through that sold my interest in my business and uh was looking for the next thing to do and discovered this weird thing i'd never heard of before called business coaching mm. Cool. And a family friend in uh, across the country was doing it. And I went, that sounds cool. And I looked into it and talked to friends and family and everybody was like, oh my God, that's perfect for you. Uh, so I started business coaching back in 2002 and sort of haven't looked back since. Oh, cool. Awesome. So, so you basically mentioned like you discovered entrepreneurship, which is something a path that someone takes. Sometimes it looks at it in the future and can be scary maybe. Right. Mm-hmm. So when did you discover that exactly and how by by the business coaching? This is what you mean. You discovered entrepreneurship and what did no, you I discovered think? entrepreneurship first. Oh, yeah. I, okay. I became an entrepreneur like I had mm. like all entrepreneurs. I had a couple of failures first. Oh, you know, what? I, I'd always it had always been in the back of my mind. Like when I was a kid in high school, there was a there's a program called Junior Achievement, which is helping like high school students start like a little small experimental business. Mm, So I, you know, I did that. Um, So I don't I'd always and I'd always been thinking about business solutions to problems. Mm. Um, So I've always been thinking about it. But then I, after six years of law, I went, "Ah, I don't like this. So I jumped into entrepreneurship. And my first two things didn't work out. uh, But they didn't work out for interesting reasons. One, because the first one was because I partnered with somebody who didn't share the same values as me and was actually quite mm-hmm. unethical and did a little bit of some shady stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one was just I didn't understand the complex buying process in a large corporation. I had the vice president of marketing for this big company tell me what I was proposing was exactly what they were looking for. So I thought, hey, I'm golden. This is great. And then it got into the, you know, the multiple buyers situation within a large organization. And I just didn't understand that process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that one didn't work out. But Mm -hmm. both of those experiences taught me that the core idea I had was actually really sound. That my instincts about what kind of business would work were actually pretty strong. What I lacked were some business skills, Mm -hmm. right? There were some insights that I didn't have. Exactly. And so... so I started started to develop them and I started a partnership with another guy and you know like every entrepreneur started developing the skills and studying and learning and uh fell in love with it. Yeah. Cool. So so learning is a big big part of being a business owner or entrepreneur. But that gets me to to basically what you basically help entrepreneurs do help ethical entrepreneurs to build businesses that matter. So from your experience the one that first failed you mentioned that your first partner was kind of unethical so from that point especially now i think now a lot of people now just push let's say the sales they hide i don't know they hide something at the end of the day they want the sale no matter what they get get it however they get it they want the sale they want the money so what do you mean exactly by ethical entrepreneur so an ethical entrepreneur who's is their their activities are constrained by an ethical framework like by doing what's right uh, you know, and a business that matters is is one that actually makes the entrepreneur a lot of money, but also has some positive impact on the world. You know, and I guess I kind of believe that it's pretty hard to authentically have a positive impact on the world if you're kind of being slimy at the same time. And the truth is, from a the other part of 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 entrepreneurship is that you're doing it to make your life better. And for most people, when there's a uh, a dissonance or an incongruency between what you know is right and what you do, 
you're not really happy. Like part of you knows that you're being slimy, mm. you know? And yeah. so you don't actually feel good about it. You might, you might justify it by, look, I've got the nice car and now I've got the nice co- co- clothes or something like that. But inside you kind of know that you're yeah, not doing cool. it the right way. And the other part of it that's interesting, if you look at your, your favorite sports star in any mm. sport, like the best of the best, they never cheat. <sighs> right. And here's the thing. When you are so good, you never have to be tempted to cheat. People who do things a bit unethical actually have not pursued excellence, right? And you actually feel way better about yourself and you grow more as an individual and you have a much better life when you pursue excellence. And when you pursue excellence, you're never tempted to do the... the Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of a... And so there's a lot of reasons for this, but at the end of the day, I think the world is a better place. Like one of the challenges that we have right now, I think in society, when you just look at people's responses to COVID and, and international business relations and so many other things is people don't know who to trust. And if people act in a way that makes everyone know that they are trustworthy and everyone does that will elevate the levels of trust, you know, but right now we've got this really weird dynamic where, you know, scientists are saying what the science says and people aren't believing them because they think they have some political agenda. You know, and how did that happen? You know, and I just find it, I find it really curious. So people, uh, people don't know, don't know who to trust. And so, in a so then you go, okay, so who do people look to trust? They look to trust the people who are in their tribe, right? And the people who are closest to them. Well, who are the people who are closest to you on a day-to-day basis? They're the people you work with, right? Yeah. And so you as a business owner, if you always conduct yourself in, in a way that's congruent with sort of the highest ethical standards, what's everyone around you going to do? They're looking to you for leadership. And you're leading saying, no, no, we don't do the wrong thing here. We don't lie to customers. We don't cheat on our business relationships. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. Then your team trusts you and they'll start to see, look, you can be successful by doing things the right way. And then it models it for other people and we start to build trust. So, I mean, that's sort of a long answer, but it's philosophically, that's what I really believe. If, if people who are in position of leadership start modeling ethical behavior and connecting the fact that they are successful because they've pursued the business skills, right? And they can be successful without ever violating their ethics. That becomes the norm, yeah, <laughs> oh, I hope that will happen, but I'm really, uh, I think that's something that will always some people like to make sometimes shortcuts to things. So if, the, if you give yep. them, for example, two choices, this A, A will give you to your destination, but it will take you five years and B will give you to the, get you to your destination in like a month. So I'm sure most probably they will choose B. For example, so you're working from with with entrepreneurs. What what are the common mistakes that you see them uh, doing? Especially now, like you mentioned, trust. So basically, we're talking about instinct, uh, gut feeling, uh, communication with the client. What the common mistakes that you see from entrepreneurs or business owners? So there's there's two levels to that question. There's sort of what I would call a meta level, like the meta mistakes, and then there's like more specific business level mistakes. So the meta, like the big level mistakes, are 
are not educating yourself. Mm. You know, business is a discipline. And so if you don't know the discipline, it's like anything. Like if you want to play football and you don't practice, you're not going to be very good at it. Right? Yeah. You know, if you want to go swimming in the, in the sea and, you, and you, you've never taken swimming lessons, you're going to have a hard time if a wave hits you. You know, it, <laughs> desire just isn't enough. So business has a number of very specific skills and disciplines. And the reality is most entrepreneurs go into business for one of three reasons. They go into it either because they have some personal passion, right? There's some thing they love to do, like art or building websites or whatever it is, carpentry. And so they start a business so they can pursue their passion. Or they have some, you know, technical skill, like they studied law or they studied medicine or, you know, engineering or whatever. Um, and so they want to do that for themselves. Or third, they're forced into it by circumstances, like they lost their job or a business closed or something like that, right? But in any of those three circumstances, that isn't because they went out and studied business first and then said, yes, that's what I want to do. They went into it from some other angle, but they haven't done, like they haven't, the number of entrepreneurs I know who haven't learned sales, like you talked about sales and people doing something slimy. You never have to do something slimy if you, have a, if you are a good salesperson. If you're a good salesperson who knows how to uncover problems, connect problems to solutions, you'll always be successful without ever doing anything, you know, inappropriate. Mm, you know, yeah. the number of entrepreneurs who don't know how to read their financial statements. And that's, they tell you the story of your business, but they don't know how to build a culture. They don't know how to recruit or hire or train people effectively. You know, so you have to learn these things. The second meta level mistake is not planning. Like too many entrepreneurs do what I call whack-a-mole. You know, if you've ever been to one of those fairs where there's the game, you kind of, the animal pops up and you got to hit it with a mallet, <laughs> a whack-a-mole. Uh, so they do that, right? They're always just sort of reacting to the thing that's coming up at them and they mm. think they don't have any control. Lack of focus. Sorry? Lack of focus. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and they're trying to do yeah. everything at once. And here's the reality, right? Like I've I've done this in front of workshops of hundreds of people that And I've asked people to put up their hands. Does your year sort of sound like this? You started the year with great, great intentions. You had clear goals. You had about 23 things you wanted to do. You got to work on all of them. You know, it was come around October. You're exhausted. You got a bunch of them on the 10 yard line, but you haven't finished any of them. And nothing fundamentally has changed in your business. Right. And everybody puts their heads down and kind of goes, yeah. And the reason for that is you're trying to do too many things at once. The reality is if you do two things a quarter, if you do, if you fix two things in your business a quarter over the course of the year, you'll have it, had made eight fundamental changes in your business. You show me five businesses that have done eight fundamental changes in their business in a year. Mm. You won't find that many. And it's because they're trying to do too much at once. So planning saying, yes, there's a whole bunch out there, but these two, these two are the big ones right now. These two are the most important. So I'm going to work on those to completion. Mm. And so I'm going to do the next one. Exactly. Right? So, so maybe these. So maybe the the rule they kept talking about the Pareto principle, eighty twenty rule, they applies here. Kind of maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah because, because you should focus on one or two, like mentioned, things that are the most important to your business. For example, building a relationship with the client, getting the sales. So yeah. at the end of the day, who like you mentioned, an entrepreneur or business owner starts a business because eventually, whether they lost their job or whatever the reason is, is. Obviously, to make money. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but I, I hear you talking about two things here: planning and culture. Uh, mm -hmm. How do they integrate together, planning and culture? Oh, they're 
you know, there's, there's, a, there's a saying out there that says culture eats strategy. And I used to believe that. Um, and I don't anymore. I actually think culture and strategy are a beautiful marriage because a strategy gets you focused on what you need to do and the culture makes sure it gets done, right? Mm -hmm. When you have a high performance culture, you don't need to be on top of everybody all the time. You don't need to be micromanaging. You don't need tons and tons of intricate systems. You, you create sort of an environment in which people are problem solvers, yeah. right? And you, and then you say, here's the strategy. Here's where our focus is. And it's sort of like having thoroughbreds, right? You put them on the track and they know they, they run. Um, and when you have that, your job as a leader becomes way better. But one of the problems is most entrepreneurs, because they haven't learned about how to recruit effectively, they haven't learned how to performance manage, they haven't learned how to build a culture, like actually what that means to proactively build a culture, mm. they settle for weak performers, right? And they don't, they don't say, I'm, I'm going to only have the right hey, players. I, I have a client who, when he, he bought into this and one of his senior positions, it took him 23 weeks to hire Oof. to find the person because he Whoa. said, I will not compromise on this position. So, so what they say is true, hire slowly and fire fast. Like uh, there's a book, I think. That's part of it. Yeah, that's part <laughs> of it. But within, absolutely. But within that, you have to make sure you know what you're hiring into. Like you're not hiring just skills. You know, you're hiring people who fit the culture that you're trying to build. Mm, exactly, yeah. Especially, and you talked a little bit about micromanagement. I, I do think these kind of days of micromanaging people are... Are gone. What do you think about micromanaging? Like the manager or the the one who's above you always like uh, above the employee. Ah, you did this wrong, and there is always something to tell the employee when he does something wrong, and when they do something right or quickly or efficient. There's not even a thank you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's two. So micromanaging sometimes is necessary mm. when you don't have like when you don't have the right person in the role and you can't find a replacement yet. So to get the, get the results for the customer or client, sometimes you do have to micromanage that poor performer because they're just, they just don't have the capability of doing it because you hired wrong. Mm -hmm. Now you need to own that and try to train that person as best as possible. And then also then find the right person for the role. Like you can't, you can't blame somebody for not being able to do something they're not capable of doing. Right? Which you, which you actually hired. You're the one that hired them, right? Yeah, like you're, you're the one responsible for the hire. So if you hire somebody who can't read and you give them the job of proofreading something, well, they're, they're not going to be successful, right? Mm. You hired the wrong person for the role. Yeah. Um, so in times like that, maybe you have to micromanage. But to your other point about criticizing people and never thanking them, Absolutely. That's just, that's just bad management. And it's actually inconsistent with human psychology. Like the way the human brain actually works is that when people are in a state of fear, like we can get into the science of this, but there's, there's something called a parasympathetic system and a sympathetic system in your brain. Hmm. And when you go into fear, you go into fight, flight, or freeze, right? You go into one of those three yeah. sort of states. Yeah. So you just want to, Eat the other person, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Or run away from them <laughs> yeah. or, or just hide, right? <laughs> but in any one of those circumstances, you, the creative centers of your prefrontal cortex shut down. They kind of go offline. Mm. 
So when you are constantly criticizing people and creating a culture of fear, you are making it that you will never get the best performance from people. Mm. Whereas when you thank people, when you recognize them, when you create a, a, an environment, there's a, there's a term now that's become very popular called psychological safety. When you create mm. an environment where people actually know that they're safe, you will, and this, you, you'll get better performance. Now, I know some people will listen to this and go, oh, do I have to coddle people? <laughs> this isn't about, it isn't coddling, right? And this is, this is the hard thing when I, when I say you got to study and really learn business. You are demanding of people. You have high expectations. So this is not coddling people at all. You are, if you're building a high performance culture, you're hiring people who want to perform, who get satisfaction out of producing great results, right? And you insist on high expectations. You build a culture of accountability. You measure results, right? But at the same time, you make it safe for people to come up with ideas, to propose solutions, to try things that maybe are a little bit daring. You, you thank people for doing that. You recognize them in front of others for doing excellent work. When you do those two things, you have high expectations, but then high appreciation. People are going to go, this is an awesome place to work. Why? Because I get to grow. Like these yeah. expectations of me mean I get better. Remember what I said about excellence earlier? Yeah. Like I'm becoming excellent, which means yeah, exactly. I have pride in what I do. I'm good at what I do. Exactly. That gives me. You, that gives you me grow. Yeah. Right. And then I'm appreciated for it as well, which means I belong. Exactly. So all of a sudden, why would I? Why would I leave this job? Exactly. Right? You you grow, and it's step by step process. Some some of the come. If we look at, for example, big companies like Google, uh, sometimes I I was reading something about them. Like a lot of their products came from certain individual and certain teams. So ideas should be encouraged because <laughs> and not taken away from them. Because look how, how many products Google now have. And a lot of them are uh, from people who worked in a company. Now, whether they are in, in higher position or lower position, it does not matter. But the ideas that can come from people or group of people is, is uh, huge, is enormous for a company. Oh, I have, I'll tell you two contrasting stories. So I have a client who she she implemented this challenge with her team. Um, I've got a couple of clients doing this, and it's a really cool exercise. But they did a little challenge that they each had to come up with just three ideas. At, I think well, I think it was an idea a day to challenge mm. them to somehow make the business better. And they did it for one month. An idea they a day. Have, okay, cool. An idea, and they they came up with something in the neighborhood of three hundred ideas. Some, some of them are bad, like some of them are terrible ideas, but they've actually got two new entire business lines as a result of that exercise. And one of them came from their newest, most junior employee. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're tapping into that, you're, you know, there's so much untapped potential in your organization. People are sitting there with creative concepts. And if you don't give them the freedom and the permission to do that, you lose it. The contrasting story to that, I had a client who was working for a large bank and they were in a meeting with some members of the bank's team. And at the end of it, the, there was a young, a young guy in the meeting who gave an idea. It was actually not a bad idea. And after they left, the vice president said to the manager of that person, why is that guy speaking up in meetings? That's not his role. <laughs> they were like, really? <laughs> and the, the guy actually had the good idea that they wound up acting on. But the, this vice president thought it was inappropriate for somebody to be coming up with an idea. Well, because he's a smaller employee than him. So he's a big... Uh, 
Yeah. That's just that's just dumb. <laughs> that sometimes, yeah, they, <laughs> these big banks, uh, <laughs> banks, they're not good. So well, well, people don't understand power as yeah as a detriment, you know. Exactly. Power should be used to help people fulfill their potential and, yeah. and provide value, not to put people down. That that's leadership. It's like what we see. It's like walking in front, not behind, and pushing people yeah. away. So what do you think are keys to effective strategy for any business or company or entrepreneur? Keys to strategy? To effective um, strategy, yeah. Yeah, so so there's a few steps like to do it well. So the first is to do like a detailed SWOT analysis, like what's working, what's not working. Mm. One of the one of the challenges with effective strategic planning is people confuse symptoms for problems. Mm-hmm. Right? They look at the thing, the thing isn't the thing. You know, like they say I have a sales problem. Mm. Well, do you have a sales problem or do you have a hiring problem or do you have a training problem? Yeah. Right? Like until you dig in deeper, you don't you want to you want to be able to identify the true problems. So you got to do a detailed SWOT analysis. SWOT means strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. Mm-hmm. Oh. You know? And so when you do that, then you kind of analyze what's there and if you do it well, you'll come up with two or three kind of themes you know, that are sticking out. And then you pick one of those themes and say, I'm going to focus on that. So a key to strategic planning is picking a focus, right? Exactly. So this quarter, we're going to focus on this and then pick just a limited number of priorities. Like I usually say three, three priorities and then get very detailed. So again, one of the things people do when they, when they mess up with, with planning is they stop at the level of goals and a, goals are not a plan, right? That's yeah, like, exactly. The goal uh, is the destination, but if you don't have a map how to get there, you will get lost, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got to actually build the action steps. What are the three actual steps that are going to be taking? Who's going to take them? And when are they going to get done? And so it, it gets down to a, a level of detail and granularity that it's it's very specific about who's doing what by when. And then the last piece, which is really where most strategy fails. It's in execution. Too many people the, do the yeah. work. Of they this is very plan. important. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 the magic. Yeah. Right. But if you don't, what happens is something comes up, right? And this is the excuse that people always have. You know, I built the plan, but then oh, something came up, and so then they put the plan away and they react to the thing that came up, and then another thing comes up, and then another thing comes up, and then pretty soon the plan is just dead. And what you have to do is have the discipline to actually do what's on the plan and make that your priority. Mm. And if someone, if someone says, well, but there was something more important to do, then that means your plan sucked. <laughs> like you didn't plan well because your plan should reflect what's most important. Mm. So if you made a plan that wasn't focused on the most important thing, then you didn't plan very effectively. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And then so you have to just learn from that. And then, and then revise your plan to make sure that it is, in fact, reflective of the thing that's most important. Yeah, but and sometimes you that, you consistently executed. Yeah, exactly. But sometimes the plan. Do you think there should be like Plan B, for example? Because sometimes things things does not work as planned, for example, because you know, with time or with certain things, some things happen that can affect the company or a business or an entrepreneur. Do you think there yep. should be backups? So I, I want to. I wouldn't frame it as a plan B. Mm. What I would say is, so every military commander and every sports coach will tell you that what happens on the field never perfectly reflects what was on the plan. (laughs) 
They would also tell you that without a plan, they would have got their butts kicked. And so what a plan is, is the framework for decision-making. So the key to execution is to be constantly referring back to the plan to see whether you're on track. If something has happened, then you might have to revise the plan or you might have to allocate resources to the plan to make sure that it gets done. Like you may find we thought one person could do this, but given their workload, we were wrong, right? We need two people to do this. So we need to reallocate resources. Any plan that doesn't allocate appropriate resources will fail. Right, you have to make a decision about reason what resources you're going to allocate, but you do have to do course corrections for sure. Like you know, an, an airplane is actually off course something like seventy to eighty percent of the time it's in the air, right? But it's continually doing course corrections to get it to, because it knows the destination. Yeah. So your plan is like that. So you need to. I, I usually say on a weekly basis, there's a there's a meeting every week where everyone who's got accountabilities on the plan has to be there, and they have to say, "Are you on track or not?" If you're not on track, then what needs to happen to get back on track? And if they can't, like if you were just, so here's the thing, here's what'll happen for your listeners. But the first time you do planning, you're not going to be good at it. <laughs> it's like all the other disciplines, right? Because it's hard. And what a plan is, is it's a theory, right? It's a theory that says, if I do these actions, it'll produce this outcome. So your theory will either be right or wrong. Mm, yeah. If your theory is wrong, then you learn from it. I thought. 10 calls would generate two leads, which would generate one client. That's either going to be true or not true, right? If it turns out it takes 20 calls to get one client, okay, now you've learned something. So then you revise your plan to say, I have to make 20 calls to get one client. It's not good or bad. It's just, that's what it is. Yeah, you have, to, you have to adjust definitely. This is the plan yeah. for, plans can be adjusted with time. It does not have to be... Right. Just strictly. You have to. But the key is everyone involved in the plan has to agree to the change to the plan. Mm. That's the magic of it. Mm. If you don't do that, if you just let people do their own thing with no accountability to the organization, then things will always fall off. Mm. Right. But if people go, oh, okay, that client or that opportunity, this happened to a client of mine recently. There, There was a new fantastic opportunity that got presented to them. And so they actually had to restructure their whole plan in the face of that opportunity because it it became, you know, more important than anything else. But what they didn't do, and this is what was so great, they didn't just say, oh, this opportunity came in, let's throw away the plan. What they did was they said, okay, what has to change on the plan to allow us to take advantage of that opportunity? Mm. And then what stays on the plan? And so it was, it was intentional thinking. Exactly. Right? It was strategic thinking. It wasn't reactive. It wasn't just, oh, this thing came up. We have to throw it away. It's like, it's like no, we're going to be thoughtful. How we intent- can integrate things in together, right? How they, yeah. how integration can work into that. So you yeah. touched, you touched on accountability. How, how important accountability to an entrepreneur, for example, to himself, and, yeah. and to the teams that are, are working. So it's interesting, right? Like if if an entrepreneur is not accountable themselves, it's very hard to hold your people accountable because then you're you're a hypocrite. (laughs) And so that's actually the third meta mistake is that most entrepreneurs don't have someone to hold them accountable. That's the the thing when it happens. when, When you are in a job, you have someone, for example, above you telling you what to do but when you are an entrepreneur, 
you are basically on your own kind of right you have to hold yourself responsible for certain things for certain times that you want to do things for certain tasks you want to accomplish for certain whatever so yeah yeah and it's really easy you know most most entrepreneurs i meet are actually pretty smart and there's a line i i have i say you know smart people don't tell themselves stupid lies (laughs) and so the justifications that you'll come up with for not doing the things that you should be doing, oh, they'll be good, right? They'll be really, you'll tell them to your friends and they'll go, oh yeah, yeah, I understand. But at the end of the day, there's still lies, right? Because, you know, it's because you just have a preference of something you do or there's something you don't feel you're very good at, so you try to avoid, or there's a call that you're uncomfortable making, whatever it is. But you need someone to hold you accountable, to make sure you're doing the things that you know you should be doing and to hold you to the standards and values that your your business has mm-hmm. you know one of my one of my clients she actually was i was very shocked but quite delighted uh she actually called me the moral compass of her business um <laughs> okay, cool. you know which was really kind of neat um and so that's the kind of why i do what i do like a coach like me is one type of resource that helps you stay accountable you know, I had a client once who <laughs> he, did, he came in and he reported on doing something. He goes, I didn't want you to yell at me. And I've been working with him for three years at this point. I said, when have I ever yelled at you? And he goes, you don't yell with your voice. <laughs> <laughs> you do you yell inside your mind. Maybe yeah, you so it, was just, it was just the fact that he asked to report into me. <laughs> like my, my approach is to problem solve with people, right? I'm not a big disciplinarian, but I do ask people to be accountable, right? And so, you know, a coach like me is someone to be accountable. There's also groups. There's groups like EO or sometimes there's mastermind groups or people just, you know, I used to have a buddy and we would call each other every day about the things we're going to do that day. Um, so, you know, whatever system you use, you should make sure that you so you you have that person or or people. And that way, so if you're constantly educating yourself, constantly planning and executing your plan and learning from your executions and then having somebody that makes that holds your feet to the fire to make sure you're doing what you say you should be doing you almost can't help but succeed yeah right um and so those those are the three but i think those are the things that people because they get caught up in the moment they don't actually spend the time doing yeah exactly sometimes it feels like like you mentioned sometimes some 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 task or something that you don't like doing or you hate doing so you keep postponing when it's actually might be important to the business these kind of things uh, so it gets it gets lost and yeah you and sometimes actually, derail the, yeah and on the account of like i think accountability is so important that actually on the front page of my website i actually have a sales accountability tracker to a planner and tracker and what it does a lot of people are not they're not experienced in sales management. And if you have salespeople, how do you actually make sure that the salespeople are doing what they're supposed to do? And, and even the salespeople learn what works and what doesn't work. So I created this super simple sales accountability tracker. And all it does, it puts the salesperson's name on the side. It identifies the tactics that they're doing. So it might be cold calling, might be networking, could be you know uh, social media marketing, whatever it is. Um, and then they identify a, a, a goal in terms of what their activity is and a goal in terms of their outcome. So 
that'll say, I'm, I'm going to do 10 cold calls, and I think the outcome is going to be two meetings. So then they report the results on it. Well, I only made five calls, and I got one meeting. Hmm. Okay, so you didn't do what you said you were going to do, but the ratio holds. So you then say, okay, our theory looks to be right. We've got a five to one ratio in terms of calls to meetings. So we just got to make sure you get your calls up to where you said they were going to be. Yeah. Right. And it's just a very, very, very simple tool, but it makes, it makes it really hard not to be accountable. Like you said, you were going to do something. Did you, your theory was that if you did it, it would produce that result. Did it. Exactly. If it did great. If it didn't, then you got to change it. And, you, you and it gives you so muscle. much control over your sales process. So if anybody, you know, if you have a sales team and, you know, you sometimes struggle with knowing what they're doing or what they're up to or or what results they're generating and how to hold them accountable, just go to my website and download that. It's it's super simple, but pretty practical. Yeah, awesome. So what would you say one takeaway from this episode, Warren? One takeaway? Um, well, it's in one, one takeaway in two parts, I guess. It would be um, make sure you are building plans that allow you to focus and building a culture that makes sure those plans get executed. Mm. If you can do those two things, you'll be cooking with gas. Awesome. So where can people get in touch with you? Uh, my website is warrencoglin.com and Coglin is spelled C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Uh, so it's warrencoglin.com. And as I say, on the, on the homepage, there's that sales accountability tool you can uh, download. And there's also a, a page of a whole bunch of resources and courses that are available. Some are free. Some there's a very small fee for the course. Um, but that gives you a pretty good insight into the kinds of things that can help you grow your business. Awesome. Well, thank you, Warren, for uh, this episode with me today. And uh, great resources at your website at warrencoglin.com. Bye. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Success Grid. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you found value in the show, rate and leave a review on iTunes. For more resources, visit successgrid.net. Until next time.